All right, we are working through the various applications of our framework for talking about our faith. And we laid out the structure of what these conversations should include. And now we're kind of taking it issue by issue of as someone says something about the reliability of Scripture... How do I apply the negative argument, the positive argument to that? As somebody uh, brings up the resurrection, how do I do it? And now we're on science and specifically a naturalistic worldview and evolutionary worldview. And as those things come up, how do we have a gracious, God-honoring conversation that fits within the overall structure of Reducing their level of certainty, they're way too sure about what they believe. And so going into their worldview and help me understand this, asking good questions to show them that their worldview can't account for what they believe. That's the negative argument. That their worldview doesn't actually match their experience, the way they live. They have feelings, they have emotions, they have moral absolutes. No matter how few they have, they have some. And their worldview can't account for any of that. And then the existential, their own lived experience. It's not, uh, it's not what their conscience tells them. It's not what they actually want to be true. Their worldview doesn't fit any of that. So last week we did that with the negative argument with respect to naturalism and evolution. And today I want to talk about the positive argument. Uh, So we'll go through our ultimate arguments as we talk about ultimate authorities, why the Christian worldview is the only one that can actually account for the concepts behind science. Uh, And then we'll talk about proximate arguments, the evidence within the world itself, and then we'll talk about existential. And uh, this time we spent so much time on the proximate arguments when we were talking about the negative perspective, how all the evidence that you would expect and that many people that you're talking to, whether unbelievers or uh, new believers, they think there's all the scientific evidence that supports their worldview. And it's a really important part of this conversation to show them, actually, (laughs) here's what you would expect to see, given what naturalism and evolution say. And here's what we do see. Here's what you'd expect to see in physics and astronomy. But you actually see the second law of thermodynamics. Here's what you'd expect to see in geology. But you actually don't have transitional forms. And and so the evidence is not uh, in their favor. I want to talk more about ultimate arguments from the positive because this is what it's all going to come back down to. No matter what the structure of your faith conversation is, no matter what a person's particular hang-up they think it is or they claim it to be, all of these conversations will always come down to one thing and your goal is to always get them to say that one thing out loud. Do you remember what is the one thing we're trying to get them to say out loud? I don't want to believe. I don't want to. This is not about evidence. This is not about rationality. This is not about uh, building the case. All of that we can deal with and we'll go through our arguments and we'll deal with it. And it's not as if once you've dealt with all their objections, they're going to say, 
you know what? You're right. Jesus is the Messiah. I give my life to him and I will do what God says from now on. doesn't happen. What you want them to say is, I don't want to. Because that's the easiest thing in the world for us to relate to. We don't have to put on some sort of fake sympathy for that, right? We just have to tell the truth. You know what? There are many times I don't want to either. And I remember a time when I didn't want to. And we can be very, I completely understand. The problem is you, you have to choose between that want and living a life that makes no sense and has no purpose. A life that you just have to pretend not to know what you know. You have to be okay with contradictions and ridiculous inconsistencies. And you just have to close your eyes to all of that, all the evidence, all the reason, all the logic. I want to close my eyes to all of that because if I don't, I would have to actually do what God says. I would have to admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior with no help apart from God. And that's a really tough thing for somebody to admit. In fact, they can only admit it by the Spirit. And what you're driving them to is just to recognize, hey, that's what this is about. And that's why I don't, I don't want to beat somebody up in these conversations. I don't want to overwhelm them or make them feel like I'm the bully. Because I, I want to get to that last part of the conversation where what they see from me is genuine Christian sympathy. And the kind that will, I'll, I will pray for you. Because that really is all I can do from this point. I can answer any question you have, talk about, let's read the scriptures, we can do these things. But what will change you is a heart thing that God does. And your want will change. That's what God does. He changed wants. The I don't want to into help my unbelief. Um, That's where we're trying to get. But they won't know that's where we're trying to get. If you told them from the beginning that's where we're trying to get, they won't agree with you. They'll say they have all the logic and the facts and the reasons and the rationality and the evidences and you have children's fairy tales and mumbo-jumbo. So we do have to deal with uh, the evidence and the reality as it is, and that's where we get our structure from. So let's start with that transcendental argument that we've been talking about the whole time, that Christianity provides the foundation for knowledge and rationality that evolution fails to provide. We've made this argument multiple times now, so I'm not going to rehash the details, but when you're talking about science and evolution, remember that uh, naturalism is a scientific point of view. Naturalism is trying to explain the evidence that we actually have. That's the nature of science. Evolution is a philosophical point of view, which doesn't make it bad. Philosophy is more important than science. But what evolution is trying to do is to go up a layer from science into the queen of sciences, philosophy, and give a grand story that accounts for everything that is. It's got to be bigger than the science that's contained within it. And the problem with evolution is its story doesn't provide the basis for knowledge. And we've talked about this in all kinds of different ways, but the, the uniformity of nature, the reason why the scientific method works, the reasons why our observations make sense, the laws of logic and rationality, why we can communicate with one another, why we think we can know anything. Evolution can't account for any of that. In an entirely naturalistic worldview, can't account for uh, order from chaos. It can't, can't account for personhood. It can't account for any of those non-material entities that we talked about. But the Bible can, because the Bible's answer is pretty sim- simple. God is the creator of the universe, 
and he made it. (laughs) And so he made these things that you cannot come up with a natural explanation for. I don't need an actual explanation if the ultimate portion of my worldview says, no, no, there's a creator. And a creator can make something. And in fact, Scripture tells us that the creator did make these things and that he made them ex nihilo. He made them out of nothing. He did not take pre-existing matter and make it into something else. He made out of nothing, both the material and the immaterial things. And so all that we have in nature, what's consistent about the Christian worldview at an ultimate level, again, you're not asking them to believe this. You're simply showing them consistency. What you want to show them is your worldview has a problem. You say this and this, and there's no way. They don't, they don't jive. All I'm trying to show you is that at least Christianity has answers to some of these questions. That doesn't prove that they're true. I'm just showing you that they're present, that the answers are present. Um, and so in the Christian worldview, God says that he has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in natural revelation. That's where we get things like science and why science becomes helpful. It's why we get philosophy and logic and why those disciplines are helpful. They teach us things about reality. It's why he gave us math and music. Uh, But he also gave a special revelation. He gave us at one point dreams and prophets, and then he gave us scripture. And that's the perfect revelation as it's the word of Christ. And so everything that we see and think everything that we would desire to understand, we understand in light of God's revelation. And that makes perfect sense if your ultimate authority is God and his revelation. That's what you can use to explain everything else. Naturalism will always be looking for the ultimate, the thing they can use to explain everything else. Every worldview has to find that. Even the ones that pretend they don't have it, that just means it's them. It's the individual. And when you make somebody say that out loud, they realize how ridiculous that is. Oh, I am the ultimate authority that defines what is true and what is rational, right? No, very few people like to say that out loud. Um, And so we're just showing the consistency. If the Christian God is true, he revealed himself, and everything that he made, we can understand through what he has revealed. Very consistent. Um, Natural revelation is good, but natural revelation needs special revelation as its interpretive guide. You think about if you ever walk through an art museum and you all might be absolutely amazing interpreters of art, but I am not. And what I benefit from at the art museum is the little book that when I'm looking at a painting, tells me what to look for. Look at the brush strokes. Look at the way the light is represented here. Look at the way that the painter used light to suggest movement. Or I need that. I need the interpretive guide. Because I can look at the painting, and I have eyes, and I have a brain. I'm no dummy. I can look at the painting, and I can understand some things. But for me to rightly understand the painting and the painter's intent of the painting, I need that little guide. That's natural and special revelation. All of life is the painting. Everything that God has made, everything that we experience is natural revelation. It's what God has made. And we can understand some things from it. 
We have eyes and ears, and we're no dummies. We have brains. But we cannot understand it rightly. We cannot understand it fully unless we have special revelation, which is God's explainer of reality. And that doesn't mean he explains every single little detail. He explains who he is, what he made, why he made, and how this stuff works. And then we use our brains to say, oh, that applies here. That's what they call good and necessary consequence uh, in, in theological language, is scripture doesn't tell you um, that you have to pay your pastor, except the New Testament says it does, where it says don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. They're like, what? What does that have to do? Right? But that's what that is. That's that good and necessary consequence thing. Um, all of reality can be rightly understood through scripture. Every worldview is looking for that ultimate explainer. The scientific, naturalistic worldview doesn't have it. Doesn't have that ultimate. Cannot explain it. Um, So then we get into the conflict between the two worldviews when it comes to reality. Because the Bible explicitly rejects the teachings of naturalism and specifically of evolution. In the Bible, Adam is a specially created being. Adam is not the end result of a long process through which God decided to bring about humanity. God made Adam, formed him from the dust, breathed his life into him. That doesn't allow for uh, millions of years through which a single cell life eventually becomes Adam. Beyond that, the Bible says that animals were created according to their kinds. Now, that doesn't mean that every single species of bird was created on day one. But it does mean God knows what a bird is, and he made birds. And he didn't make amoebas that would one day become birds. He made birds. Um, So we have to start with the authority and interpret evidence in light of the authority. And what I think unbelievers and even younger believers that haven't given this enough thought, what they need to hear us say is that point very clearly. The ultimate argument is the whole ballgame. Because what they're saying is the physical evidence as I understand it to exist is my ultimate authority. And religion, philosophy, worldview, everything else comes under that as a result. And we say, okay, but negative argument. Here's all the ways. That's not actually what you're doing. There isn't the evidence that you think there is. Like, negative argument. But then the positive argument is, let me show you how Christianity works, which is to flip that on its head. Which is to say, we start with the ultimate authority, which is the God who made the world and revealed himself. And yes, we can trust our senses. He gave, and here's why we can trust our senses. And in fact, you can't in your worldview. Here's why we can trust science and the scientific method. No, that's not, absolutely. It's, God does not call us to what people now call blind faith. Which what they mean by that is, no matter what the evidence says, this is what I'm going to believe. So you can ask a church full of of evangelical Christians sometimes, 
good Bible-believing folk. And you can ask them, if the bones of Jesus of Nazareth were found, forget about how we would prove it, but let's just say DNA, blah, 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 100%, not 99%, 100% sure we found the bones of Jesus of Nazareth in a tomb in the far in the east. 100%. If that happened, what would happen to your faith? And lots of good evangelicals think that they're doing a good thing when they say, nothing, I would still believe. And the right answer is, I'd be out of here. This is not the way I would spend my Sunday morning. Because there's a difference between That's what people think we're doing. This blind faith, close my eyes to evidence, ignore all, as opposed to having intellectual humility, which is what we're actually doing and saying, what you guys are calling certain is not actually certain evidence. We don't have the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, given all the hubbub around Jesus, that whole king of the Jews thing, and the Jews being mad, and the Romans, and the... It's pretty shocking that we don't have his bones. Right? So it's not, we're going to ignore certain evidence. It's, we're going to have the intellectual humility to say, when I'm dealing with speculation, presupposition, theories, not facts, I'm going to have the humility to think I could be wrong. I don't have all the evidence. I don't fully understand it. And evolution, uh, the people most influential in the scientific community recognize and will freely say that there's very little quote-unquote what we call proof for evolution. That's not a problem in the scientific world. I mean, that's me saying it. It's not a problem. There's lots of things in science that that's not how proof works. But again, that's why you got to remember it's a philosophical construct. You need to think of evolution the way you would think of Buddhism or Islam, or it is a philosophical construct trying to explain reality. And Lots of people who believe that philosophical construct think that it's based on absolute facts, things that are demonstrably true and that you're burying your head in the sand if you don't see them. And what we're trying to say is, no, no, it's not. Uh, And we need to be able to say that, and then we need to be able to say, let's look at the internal consistency of the Christian worldview. Um, Animals were created according to their kinds. If you had bulletproof irrefutable evidence that that were not true, but that biological diversity actually came from cell to amoeba to, what did I say last week, fish cat? (laughs) Um, We would not bury our heads in the sands with that kind of evidence. But it actually strengthens our argument to say, yeah, where is that evidence? Where is the fish cat? Where are the transitional forms? What's the deal with the Cambrian explosion? What's the, what, right? So, well, when you say kinds, um, but then they have the species, you have, have the kinds, and then the different species kind of evolve. So the way you have that kind of like... Evolve's a dangerous word in that context. That's what I was trying to... Yeah, what, what evolved suggests is unique genetic biological material. And that's exactly what we never have any positive evidence of even once. Back to my sickle cell anemia example last week. So um, what seems more likely based on the evidence we have 
is that God created a lot of variety of the different types of animals. Through the process of natural selection, you can get subtle changes within animals and populations. Things become extinct. Traits become more dominant, less dominant. But those were already existing traits. And the challenge with even using the word evolution is it suggests some new genetic material, some trait that just appeared and wasn't already. And again, I'm not saying that's impossible. It's fascinating. We've never seen it. The only thing close to it we've ever seen are genetic mutations, and they result in death, not life. Yeah, no, that's good. That's what I was trying to kind of yeah. leave there. Um, so if you had, you know, cat, the original, you know, have all kinds. You can get different colored cats. You can get different shapes of ears. Leopards. And, I mean, you go through all. No, he made lions. He made leopards. Okay. Yeah, it's very difficult. Whether he made snow leopards and other type of leopards, where now you're dealing with things like color and size of paw, that's the sort of stuff that natural selection does a pretty good job of accounting for. So I would say at best, we we don't know. It, it seems very likely that that he did not make every color of everything that it, right? Right, right. But he made sufficient biodiversity that all the genetic material for the animal kingdom was there. Okay. And what, what evolution says is, no, we can just start with this much genetic material and through some process we have never even seen once. Well, we haven't had enough time. I don't mean we haven't had enough time to see a fish turn into a cat. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for a single positive genetic mutation that is that is passed on across generations. Just just one, yeah. right? Just you know what? Uh, on, on dating apps, people think blue-eyed people are more attractive. So you would think that over some amount of time, there'd only be blue-eyed people in the world anymore. Right, like it's that level of silly of just that's all I'm looking for. That's all I'm looking for. Or, or no, but it would it, it, even that, like natural selection at some. What about a new color of eyes that somebody has some genetic anomaly that creates a new color of eyes? That's new genetic material that happened through a mutation that has a positive change, and so, so you don't see any of it in any, not just humans. Andy, so it's, it's very troubling from a scientific point of view how arrogant the evolution yeah. side of the debate is. Because I love to talk about, I like chemistry and physics more than biology, but I love to talk about this kind of, this, what I studied in undergrad. And you can't really have an honest conversation with very many scientists today um, because they, they don't want to have the argument at, this, at the ultimate the ultimate level. You can have great discussions about science when you're dealing with Christians who start with the right ultimate level and then want to do science at the proximate and the existential stage where they belong. Um, Other things the Bible says that contradict evolution. And again, this is just why Christians have to dismiss evolution as unacceptable is because scripture, special revelation, interprets natural revelation. And when they are in conflict... We have to say, well, there's something that we don't understand, or uh, our understanding of natural revelation is wrong. And 
it's not as though evolution has all this evidence supporting it that makes us even take a real hard look at scripture to say, whoa, how could these two jive together? It doesn't have the necessary evidence supporting it to be a rational scientific or philosophical explanation for the world. And um, it's in direct contradiction with several things scripture does say. So even if we misunderstood some aspect of what scripture says, um, if it's one verse, if it's one idea, well, then that's what I mean. Maybe we're misunderstanding what scripture says. That's possible. But when it's a whole bunch of stuff, Adam is a specifically created being. Uh, you have to give up on that if you're going to be a Christian who holds to evolution. You, so the, the, the age of the earth is one I'll talk about in a minute, whether the universe was created in the span of six days. I believe, yes, that's true, because that's what scripture says. Um, and I can walk through some of that. There are lots of God-fearing, Jesus-honoring, Bible-believing people who believe in an older universe. Um, but it's not just that they would have to set aside for evolution. They would have to set aside the special creation of Adam. They'd have to set aside that animals were created each according to their kinds. They'd have to set aside what is the biggest one for me. The biggest one for me used to be six-day creation, which I still hold to be absolutely true. But the, the, the part that for me became more alarming is the idea of death before the fall. If you are a Christian who accepts evolution, you have to reject the Bible's claim that there was no death before the fall, human or animal death, and that the first animal that dies is as Scripture reports. Because remember, they're plant eaters prior to this. The first animal that dies is the one that God kills to clothe his fallen people. That is so profoundly theologically important. To give up on that, to say... No, 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 no. Animals have been dying for billions of years. That's a tough, that's a tough one for me. Uh, not tough for me. I just won't do it. But um, I think the Bible makes a compelling case for the universe, for a young universe, a young earth, an earth that was created in six days. I don't think the Bible is silent on the issue. Um, there's, the Bible teaches no death before the fall. The Bible teaches a global flood of Genesis 6 through 9. The Bible gives consistent genealogies, starting with Adam, that give us a comprehensible measure of time. It's not as if Genesis was not written with human time in mind. It's not even as if the creation account was given without human time in mind. It was evening and it was morning. It was evening and it was morning. It was evening and it was morning. Um, so I, I think you'd have to have strong, compelling reasons evidence-based reasons to then go back and look at scripture and say the plain interpretation of this we must be misunderstanding uh, Moses and God must have had a different intent for how we're to read this but then when you look at the supposed evidence that's supposed to make me do that a lot of this book is about that creation and change the scientific evidence that's supposedly supposed to make me look back at scripture and say no it has to be an old earth um, it really doesn't it really doesn't do that uh, radiometric dating is one of the biggest ones this idea that well we have fossils we have evidence of things that are millions of years old um, and to prove me wrong they really just need to be able to prove that something is older than 9,000 years old uh, which is, they say, yeah, we can do that no problem, look, we do this radiometric dating we figured it out. R radiometric dating assumes too many things about the universe. It assumes a closed system. It, it assumes a consistent um, 
speed of decay of elements that we've only been observing for dozens of years, but we're willing to say that they, observe, they degrade or decay at the same level across, in their case, billions or millions of years, um, that, that it, 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 it claims too much. It claims more than it can, um, than it can prove. Um, starlight is a problem, right? If God created stars and it takes light a long time to travel from as far away as the stars are, then we shouldn't see any stars yet because if the earth is only 6,000 years old, then none of the stars are really close enough that the light would have gotten here yet. Um, There's several problems with that. One is the consistency of the speed of light, the very thing that they're claiming to be true. uh, They have evidence that it's not true. The speed of light seems to slow down over time. There's a strange relationship between light and time. Uh, It seems to be decaying. Uh, there's a strange relationship, what's called event horizons, between gravity and time. So the, the physicists and astronomers that are studying the really, really cool astrophysics deep stuff, they're less convinced by this argument than anybody because there's just so much that we don't understand that we don't explain. Uh, whereas it's much easier to say that when God said, let there be light, he created both the source of the light and the object that receives the light. Right? Like that's, I was just thinking, I mean, he can create the universe with maturity like as, I mean yes you want to be careful on that so you're correct okay. and he did create a mature universe and it's very simple to explain that to somebody of uh, when God says that he created Adam and Eve do you think that he created them as one minute old newborn babies no, no. so we already agree that the Genesis account says God created mature human creation Why would we think it's so bizarre that God created a mature geographical creation, geological creation? Um, Now, what what you want to make sure somebody understands you're not saying is that God played tricks. He created evidence of things that never were. There were no dinosaurs, but God created a world with layers of dinosaur fossils that look like they're four million years old. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the world is not as old as you think it is. And the effects of a catastrophic worldwide flood uh, actually do geologically account for a tremendous amount of what we see. But that's a story for another day. Um, So regardless of where you come down on the age of the earth, you have to throw out a lot of special revelation to accept the story that evolution provides. And hopefully, if you got the chance to do your negative argument before the positive one, you've shown the other person and reconvinced yourself, I might be willing to do that for a really compelling, persuasive, hey man, you are burying your head in the sand if you want to reject this. As opposed to, it's not a very good theory. It's Evolution is just not a super compelling theory. It's the best one they got because they're not going to come up with one because this is the world that God made. And that is ultimately the only worldview that can make sense of it or provide for rationality. As you have this conversation with people, and again, it's, 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 it's not this structured. It's not a class lecture. It's having these things in the back of your mind and being able to respond to their questions and their concerns. And what you're trying to show them again and again is that the Christian worldview can account for what other worldviews cannot. 
That is the heart of the ultimate argument. The Christian worldview is logically consistent. The Christian worldview has answers to really important questions. That won't make you like the answer. It won't make you believe the answer. But it has an answer, and the answer is internally consistent with the other things that it claims. When you ask those critical questions of evolution, and beyond that, of materialism, of naturalism, it doesn't have many, many, many important answers Where did the first life come from? Forget about the second one. Where did the first life come from? Where did the first material come from? The first source of heat. Go back to the very, very beginning. I'll give you everything you want about Big Bang evolution after that. But you tell me where the first one came from. It it doesn't even try to answer that question. It can't. Um, And then when it does start to answer questions... It becomes a logically incoherent mess. Ultimate questions and even the proximate and the existential questions. It can't explain the evidence, can't explain second law of thermodynamics, can't explain why the speed of light decays over time, can't explain why gravity works the way it does, can't explain morals, can't explain logic. So let's go over that list just one more time because I do think this is kind of an important part for you to keep track of. The things that the Christian worldview can account for that other worldviews cannot. The things that you're not going to want to overwhelm somebody with this whole list. You're going to want to find the one or the two that you can dial in on that you see something click with them. Huh, yeah, that is something I believe in. And I'm not sure I could explain why or how I believe in it. Uh, So one is with normativity. There is a God who's an absolute person. And because he created according to his nature, his nature dictates how things are and what is. All these things, personhood, um, everything that is normative for his creation, normal for us, everything that is as it is, requires order. Order doesn't come from chaos. Go back down that from last week. Mentality. The concept of a conscious mind. I have a mind. An an immaterial, not just a brain, I have a mind. If it was just a brain, remember the gross stamp-looking example I gave last week. If I only had a brain then the way I could transmit ideas from myself to somebody else would have to be chemical. Lick the stamp, he licks the stamp, something is (laughs) gross transmuted there, right? But we know that's not how it works. I can transpose the idea in my mind into something else that's immaterial, which is words, sound waves. He receives the sound waves. His brain can re- Jigger them back into ideas. Because not only does he get the idea that I tried to send him, he gets a unique opinion about that idea. I think Paul's nuts. Or I think that's a mean way to say that. Or, right? It's not just the idea that comes across in the abstract. You form, because of your mind, some individual connection to that idea that is more than chemical. That's mentality. 
uh, or even consciousness fits under there as well. We talked last week about abstract entities. There's lots of them. That's an I. Um, non-physical, non... This is a ridiculous $5 word. Non-spatio-temporal. Um, universals, numbers, propositions, math. Things that are abstract, but we all agree they exist. Numbers is the easiest to explain to people as an abstract entity because everybody has a concept for numbers, especially if you seal their money. Because if they say that there's... Uh, numbers don't exist because they have no physical existence, then they won't notice that $50 missing. <laughs> What's the difference between $51 and $1 if numbers don't exist? Logic. We talked about this a lot. You can't have a law of non-contradiction in a purely material world. Science. We talked about this a lot, especially the scientific method. You don't have the uniformity of nature. The idea that results can be predictable. Um, you can't have any of that in their system. Morality. Can't have absolute right and wrong. And people will say, great, because I don't believe in absolute rights and wrong. And then you got to go find the ones that they actually do believe in. Um, Science is a helpful one. Is it absolutely, is it wrong for scientists to falsify their data and report wrong conclusions? Right? They're in a little bit of a bind there between the two. Um, and, and then reason. The fact that this whole conversation is happening. They believe that we are able to persuade and to be persuaded. They believe that we're able to be convinced. They what they're saying is they believe what they believe because that process exists and they got enough evidence that convinced them. And your problem is you either don't have enough evidence or you're denying the evidence. But they can't even account for that process. If I am in a purely materialistic world, I can't control what I believe. It's a result of inputs. External stimuli have made me believe what I believe. That's these are the actual rules, things like non-contradiction, that something cannot both be and not be. Reason is the broader process. Human rationality. This is real big picture. Um, that was the whole idea going way back. Like Aristotle said that's what makes us different from animals. Yeah, I mean, people debate things like um, a few years ago there was a big hubbub about the, the monkey that needed to be given personhood so they would stop doing these experiments on the monkey because the monkey should, like, and whether or not we should do experiments on the monkey is a valid moral question, but not because the monkey deserves personhood. And everybody's like, well, it's, you know, it's 99.93% R DNA and well, and it's, yeah, but don't you think it's interesting that despite that fact, the monkey has not stood up and said, I demand personhood. I would like a court-appointed attorney. I w- right? Yeah. Like, uh, animals can learn really amazing adapted behaviors. They have a kind of intelligence that we get. But most of what we see in animals, we're projecting 
on animals. We're personifying them, right? My cat doesn't actually think all of the things that I tell my kids the cat is saying. I don't think so. Um, Yeah, there's something unique to personhood. And do you know what? Do you know what? You know what? Naturalism and evolution cannot explain is that distinctness of personhood and getting back to sort of existential arguments. You know that everybody knows that deep within them that a dog is not a child. No matter how much they love their dog, it is not their human child. And their worldview can't account for why that would be. Oh, we just, you know, we prefer our species above others. No, many of us prefer the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not preference. There's something real there. Um, all right, so then, just real quick, proximate arguments. That's the evidence from the external world. We've talked about that a lot. But you do have the biggest, the teleological argument. This order chaos design problem. How do you explain the order that you see? How do you explain irreducible complexity in bi- biology? Stuff that if you took off one little piece, it would just be dead. And so you can't say it evolved these little bits one piece at a time because it, their model would never account for that. Whereas a teleological argument says, look, you know how something gets like this? Somebody made it. Somebody made it that way. Think about the alphabet soup example. When you can chuckle because the word and, A-N-D, shows up in the letter. But if the preamble to the Constitution appears in your bowl of soup, you don't think, what a, what a spontaneously random event. You think, hey, my jerk was in here messing with my soup. Right? It's evidence of a designer. It's evidence of intent. By the way, intent is something that their view can't account for. The fact that you have wants, unique wants, it's fascinating. Um, And so that's where you get things like um, the intelligent design theory. You get um, a a more what we call a catastrophic view of history, which is what, what, (laughs) you're going to laugh at this, but what most scientists are trying to assume about the origins of the earth and ancient things is that it's a relatively uniform series of events. And I know they have to introduce these random catastrophes. I get it. But they won't let us say, you know, one major global catastrophe explains all of this within the Christian view. All this evidence that you're struggling to deal with, the lack of transitional forms, the rock layers, what we're saying, if it were true, would need a global flood to make something like that happen. And oh, look, a global flood. Um, so you can have these other arguments. You can get as into them or not as you want. Um, I'm more concerned about the ultimate argument when it comes to the positive side. Is your evidence doesn't explain what you think it does. Spend a bunch of time in the proximate arguments on the negative. But then talking about Christianity, it's, it's going to come down to the ultimate argument. And then last, the existential, your personal experience. Uh, Our friends, the Hoffers, are on their national parks trip. And so they sent us a picture at the beginning of the week, standing at 
what I think was the east rim of the Grand Canyon. You've seen that view or you've seen views like it in your life. What does your heart tell you when you see that view? What has God done? (laughs) Who is like you? Who could do this? You watch the, the stupid David Attenborough documentaries in 4K on the things on the bottom of the ocean, the ones that aren't nibbling my toes and brushing up against my legs, creeping me out all week. And you think, who could do this? It's not randomness. It's not chance. Yeah, this is not evidence. This is existential. This is what my heart testifies to me. Um, you, you always want to weave that into your discussion with people. It humanizes the discussion of haven't you just seen some things that defy even your natural explanations? Like doesn't, every now and then, doesn't your heart just cry out that God is creator? And you need, you need to give your testimony to that. You need to show how that testimony then works back up the chain and is consistent. It's consistent with how you treat other human beings. Why do you treat human beings with dignity? It doesn't make sense in a materialistic world. You should be absolutely opportunistic in a materialistic, naturalistic world. But you treat humans with dignity. And the person you're talking to, by and large, probably does too. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And no matter how far your heart wants to run from that, and I get it, my heart wants to run from that too. It wants to run from obligations to God. It wants to run from the acknowledgement of my own sin. When we look at people in the world today mutilating their bodies in various ways to deny their gender, to deny their humanity ultimately, our hearts should cry out with such pity. That that's, that's what they're being driven to by this naturalistic worldview. And it's existential torture because you're denying what your heart knows to be true. And we can all do that for a while. You cannot do it and have a joyful life. And the scariest thing in the world is that you would do it and God would turn you over to it and say, fine, this is what you want. This is what you get. Um, And what we're crying out for with people in these conversations is, hey, God is actually calling you to an alternative. He's calling you to a life that explains the way you feel and the evidence you see, and it gives your life uh, purpose and meaning. And every time I listen to you explain your worldview to me, which I really appreciate you sharing, you've put up with a lot of questions. I'm so glad that you were willing to talk about this. I know it's a lot to take in. I just got to tell you, that view makes me sad. It, it, it doesn't answer the questions that you have or that I have that I agree are really important. And it just doesn't make sense or meaning of life. And what you're aiming for, genuine sympathy and compassion, none of this will have to be manufactured. If you get into that part of a conversation with somebody, your heart breaks for them. And what you're going for is for them to say, yeah, but I don't want to. I like sleeping around too much. I like drinking 
this much, too much. I like, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I grew up in the church and it was all these rules. And it was like, you want the personal testimony to come out because that's what all of this is about. So next week and the week after, we will talk about specific religious worldviews, people who are Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or uh, uh, Islam or other things, and just kind of, there are some different things at work there than what we've been talking about up to this point, which is people who just want what they want out of reality, and they don't want to be told what to do. And everything about Christianity tells them what to do, and they won't have it. So whether they're completely ignorant to Christianity or they grew up in it, they have this perception of this is what it would mean for me. It would change everything. Well, they're right about that. When you hear their story is where you find all the ways they're wrong about what that means. (laughs) It does change everything. It does make a whole life obligation. But they probably don't know what that means. And it's that ignorance, fear, negative experience that's holding them back from really engaging. And everything we just talked about for 10 weeks is just subterfuge. We have to be willing to do it or you never get to have the real conversation. But it's all just window dressings. None of it is what really matters.